Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion. Um, this is a, a special kind of timely one because we're going to be talking about the Georgia voter suppression law or laws that went into effect or, or were voted in um, about a month or so ago. And so we're going to talk about that and the effect of that on on the black community and, and other communities of color. Um, but first of all, hello to my amazing co-hosts, Nina and Mike. How are you two? I'm doing great. How are you two? Hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited to be back and I'm super excited for our, our guest. I think it's going to be an incredibly dynamic conversation this afternoon. Totally agree. And, and so without further ado, uh, let's introduce Magalie Renee. Uh, CEO of Workplace Catalyst. And uh, Magalie, I, first of all, hello, welcome. And how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing great today. I'm so excited to be here. This is actually a really, uh, it's a momentous interview, oddly, because I attended my cousin and god sister's funeral this morning, and her name was Midwin Charles. And she was a legal analyst for MSNBC, CNN, and countless other uh, uh, media and and it's it's really an honor to be having this conversation in this way on this topic today of all days. So thank you so much for having me. No, well, thank you for um, gosh honoring us with the time. Uh, sorry about your loss, but yeah, thank you. And and I agree. I think this conversation um, is just it's so powerful given everything that's going on right now. But first, tell us a little bit about you, kind of your background, your history. Um, I think it's just fascinating. Sure. Yeah. So, so my background is actually in uh, communications, so marketing and public relations. I was working in communications for Fortune 500 companies. I've done. I've supported mom and pop shops, all kinds of businesses, organizations, companies uh, for about 13 years before I transitioned and uh, eventually went to work for the next five years, somewhere in between, for the Ford Foundation. And I was working in sustainable livelihoods, and that's really where I fell in love with. Uh, with uh, social justice and uh, social work, social change work. Uh, and eventually I landed where I am now, which is running my company, Workplace Catalyst, where we really support mission-driven companies in uh, bridging compassionate leadership and belonging and well-being. We really believe that those three things, they live together and must be worked on together in order to really create sustainable change. So that's my background. I love it. And, and so in, in your name, so we talked about your name and uh, it, it's French and, and Haitian history, um, but also, you know, you're for, you, you mentioned that your first language was, was French, right? And, it was until yeah. I was five, until kindergarten. Oh, yeah. My, yeah. The, the name is, is French is how I got it because uh, the, the national language of Haiti at the time was French. And I certainly spoke French only until five. So English is actually my second language. I never kind of thought about it like that until now. I, I'm the same. I, my Spanish was, was my first language. So probably the first two, three years. Um, and, and then we moved from uh, my, my dad's from Argentina and we moved from South America to the U.S. And uh, it, it's really, yeah, I'm so thankful now because it sort of gave me that structure, you know, that that foundation to where it, it's a little easier for me, even though I have, I don't speak it frequently to kind of get back into it. Right. And, and pick it up and at least understand it better. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, I've been to Paris and, and yeah, I've been to Paris and other countries, but Paris about five or six times. And on the fifth trip there, I believe it was the fifth trip. It could have been the fourth. All of a sudden I could read everything. I could order off the menu. I could ask questions. There's a bit of good directions. Like the language just sort of comes back. You know, it's like a muscle, it's like muscle memory. Yeah. Well, and I know like I'll, it takes me a couple of days usually when I'm visiting like Argentina, I'll start dreaming in Spanish. And oh, interesting. It's really weird. It's so weird. And it, it doesn't stick for long, but um, that's when I know like, okay, I still got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about um, the, the, the Georgia voter suppression laws. I, I don't know what, tell us, tell us what we should know. I mean, what we should know is that we're calling it a voter suppression law. It's actually uh, SB 202. And we're calling it that because ultimately that's the result. And there are a lot of very, very disturbing similarities to the Jim Crow laws. And, you know, the question that I like to ask, the critical questions that I like to ask when we see uh, legislation like this is to what end? Right. To what end would be one of the questions. And the next would be who will be most impacted, because those are really important questions to ask. And when you dig down deep, uh, you know, there are 16 provisions that ultimately hamper the right to vote for some Georgians and and or strip power from state and local election elections, uh, officials, right, elected officials and gives it to the legislators. So it's really ultimately a power grab. So when we talk about to what end, it's so that a particular party can can make a power grab because they have the power to do so because the legislator legislators uh, it's run by Republicans at the moment in Georgia and in other states because this is this kind of law is showing up is popping up in other states as well um, and that's to what end that's that's why this is happening is because they know they cannot win elections when black people. Uh, large numbers of black people, people of color go out and they vote, right? So it's, it's truly, and who will be impacted most? It is people of color, ultimately, because the neighborhoods that have the, the lowest number of uh, polling locations are neighborhoods of color, low income neighborhoods. Um, and, and, you know, I can get into more specifics for, I'll give you just a few. Uh, one would be that instead of 24 hour access outdoors to drop boxes, the boxes, the limited number and the limit, the numbers have been limited will be placed indoors inside government buildings and early voting sites. And thus they become unavailable to voters who want to drop their ballots off in the evenings or non-business hours. So when you think about it, who will that impact most? It impacts workers, people that are doing nine to five work, or maybe they're working overtime. And they're the people that are, that are working hard and doing the kinds of jobs that they can't take off from usually are people of color. So that's just one of the many things, you know, waiting in long lines. Who's waiting in long lines? The people in the neighborhoods that have the fewest number of, of uh, polling locations. And those locations were, were lowered in number by the Shelby decision. You know, look that up, the Shelby decision in, in 2013. And so that's who's waiting in these long lines. And now this act has made it a misdemeanor crime to give someone food or water in a line. So what does that tell you? The point of this is to discourage people from voting. 
right? We had Stacey Abrams register 800,000 voters, uh, many of them of color in Georgia. And so those voters are most affected by this. And that's what really the Republicans are fighting back on. And I don't even like to talk about party lines because ultimately uh, I'm a moderate, but at the end of the day, unfortunately, that's what this particular government that's in power in Georgia at the moment is doing. And they happen to be Republican. So I'm just sharing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is um, this is a pretty personal topic for me. Uh, I used to, some of our listeners don't know this, but uh, I used to do uh, political work um, and I actually worked on the 2004 presidential election doing get out the vote work with uh, largely um, in black Haitian, commu black communities, African-American communities, Haitian communities and uh, Latinx communities down in South Florida. And one of the things that we would do was you know, it was so clear the, the difference between access to voting polls for rich white neighborhoods versus black and brown neighborhoods, because you could go vote in North Miami Beach where it's predominantly white and you would never have to wait in line. But if you live somewhere in Dade County, you would literally be waiting in line for four or five hours. Um, and, and I used to hand out water and food to, to folks who were waiting in line because the polls would close at seven and they, they literally wouldn't get to vote until 10 or 11 p.m. at night because they they were allowed to vote, but only because they happened to get there before seven, happened to get in the line before 7 p.m. And it's intentional. Oh, like, yeah. It's clear. This is very intentional. These long lines in these specific neighborhoods to dissuade these specific voters from casting their vote. It is 100 percent intentional. It absolutely is. Um, but like, I think one of the things that's interesting, like there's been a huge history of voter suppression laws. It's, that's exactly it. It's been intentional. It's been around for hundreds of years. To me, this is just yet another one. But what surprised me was that all these companies came out in early April, like Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines and Google and Salesforce and Patagonia and American Express and all these private Fortune 500 companies are coming out and they're like saying, hey, we don't support this bill. <laughs> and yep. Yep. You never, I mean, honestly, I, I, having worked in politics, there's not often times where you see like big companies coming out and supporting a thing like this when it doesn't have a direct, well, honestly, it doesn't seem to have a direct impact on their bottom line, uh, you know, that their lobbyists aren't going to be going out and putting their, their money and resources to, but then this all of a sudden changed. Why, what, what happened? Why did that change this time around? So I have an interesting perspective on this. So first of all, I think we've got to kind of back back out of the conversation, the specifics of the conversation for just a moment to give context. Um, and I think this is a conversation about leadership. And in particular, it's a conversation about compassionate leadership. So when you begin to look at what is happening in the world, the more polarized we get, uh, you know, it, it makes me think of, and I'm not making an analogy here, but I just think it's a really interesting way to look at things. If you think about Germany, pre-war World War II, and you think about the polar, like it was polarized, right? At some point there was a buildup and, and the, the country was getting more and more and more polarized. And somehow in the midst of that, I'm going to bring this back to, to now where we are now, we've got like very opposing energies. And ultimately, what's, what's the direction we're heading in? As you get further and further away from each other, as people get further and further away from each other, right? The only place that we're gonna go if we continue to go in that direction is war. Like 
that's the ultimate bad, right? That can happen. And so when you're in that kind of context and then you add, so you got polarization, you add a racial awakening, you add uh, the graphic gruesome murder of George Floyd, right? It, it, it's the catalyst for all of this. You add in a pandemic, a global pandemic. You add in the increase of mental health problems. I mean, I could go on and on and on if I wanna talk about the challenges that we're faced with in this moment in time. So when we begin to look at leadership, in order to be effective at leadership, you've got to be a compassionate leader. I think it all of a sudden behooves companies and organizations and executives. They are faced with, it's, a, it's sort of a come to, for lack of a better term, and it's not because it's religious, but I just like the term, the come to Jesus moment, right? A come to Buddha moment where you just decide at some point, what kind of leader will I be? What kind of organization? What do we want to support? We're either on the side of humanity and democracy or we are not, right? You get to that point where it begins to become black and white. And what's gotten us here, the kind of leadership that's gotten us this far will not uh, support us as a, as, a, as a human race in navigating this moment in time, and it won't get us where we want to go, assuming that where we want to go is humanity, right? Equality, unity, diversity, equity, inclusion. If that's where we're headed, then the leadership that's gotten us this far won't get us there. So I think companies are having a really, it's like an existential crisis, right? And in this come to Buddha moment where they recognize we either are on the side of democracy or we're not. And it's really the, these voter suppression laws and, and shifts and these, uh, these changes, are they're anti-democratic, they're anti-American. And so I think that's what it comes down to. And compassionate leadership, you know, when people talk about that or hear those terms, I know that sometimes they're thinking, okay, we need to be enablers, we're going to hold hands and sing kumbaya. But being a compassionate leader isn't about that. It's actually about standing up with courage, leading with courage, leading with conviction. And I think uh, companies like Delta, Coca-Cola's uh, CEO, Major League Baseball, which I don't know if you mentioned, Will Smith, Anton Fuqua as directors, you know, doing these big budget, uh, these big budget movies, they're really deciding to take a stand. And it's, it's a very clear cut decision to be compassionate leaders and have the courage and conviction to take a stand against something that's anti-American and anti-democratic. What, what, what's interesting about um, that, there, there's a contrast too, I think. And for, by the way, like, so Nina and I, we, we uh, have taught um, some, some bias and empathy courses. And we talk a lot about compassionate empathy being a, a level of empathy that we should all strive for, especially as leaders, exactly to your point, because it's, it, it's, and it's very hard to achieve. So it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it really is the best place that leaders can be at to really truly be able to help those around them. Uh, and so I love, I love that, that focus. There, there's a contrast though, when talking about these companies and these film productions, because um, so Ryan Coogler, who's the director of Black Panther and the upcoming Black Panther 2, has stated that there's, they're keeping their production in Georgia to, to support the people of, you know, who, who rely on a production of that size for, for income, right? What, what's that, that to me, it's a very, so there's, a, you know, there's an interesting 
dynamic here at play. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a it's a really great point of conversation. So <laughs> yeah, are you you're are you I'm assuming you're asking for my thoughts on that. Yeah, I would love it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes, please. I didn't want to cut off your your point no, if you said what to me. Okay. Yeah, I think I think this is really interesting. So I want to just make it clear that if we circle back, right, in terms of compassionate leadership, one of the the foremost tenets of being a compassionate leader is to be is awareness. That's like that's like one of the one of the first things I have because I, I do similar work to you. And one of the first things that I have uh, executives that we're leading through these programs think about is awareness. So again, it brings us right back to the first two questions: to what end? and who will be most impacted? Another way to think about that is, what is my intention and who will be most impacted? So I can't speak specifically to Ryan Coogler's decision, but based on what you're sharing, he thought about those two questions and decided that to what end, what is his intention? Perhaps his intention with that production is to support the people of color, perhaps the most marginalized groups, right? They are the most marginalized groups, people who can use uh, the income most. And he decided that perhaps that outweighed his desire to, uh, to boycott, right? And so you've got to kind of weigh, you've got to weigh it as a compassionate leader. Maybe that was the most effective decision for him to make. Uh, who will be most impacted? Perhaps he asks himself, and I, mind you, I'm, I'm, this is all speculation. I don't know for sure. I'd have to read up more about it. And really, you know, I, I want anyone who's listening, don't hold me to this, but I'm just, just kind of taking a guess and giving my own, my own opinion based on the little information that I have. Um, so perhaps he was thinking who will be most impacted? The people that will be most directly impacted by my decision to leave and, and take this production elsewhere are the people who need the support of a production like this the most. So uh, I think it's important as we're thinking about, again, bigger picture, right? As we're thinking about uh, these big picture moments in time, uh, these, 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 these moments that have us really look at our lives and our decisions as leaders. And we've got decisions to make. And we're thinking about things like racial equity, like diversity, like inclusion. Uh, we're thinking about how can we be most compassionate, support the most people. You've got to really be specific. The way that you respond to something may not look like the way the, the leader at another organization or uh, in another role or another department, it may, it may not look the same, but it may be as effective when you look at your specific situation. So I don't think we should paint anyone with the, with the same color brush, you know, uh, this, the same goes for people of color. We're not a monolith, right? So we've got to really be specific about our intention. To what end are we making the decisions that we choose to make? Uh, and who will be most impacted and how will they be impacted? So that's that's what I got there, but it's a, definitely an interesting conversation. Well, and I think, uh, Magali, I, when you think of, again, kind of post George Floyd murder, which we're coming up on the year anniversary of, and we're literally hours after the conviction um, right now, this this point in time, the what, what's interesting about kind of how all these subjects in my in my mind kind of connect is uh, you had, uh, you know, for the first time, you know, massive brands committing massive amounts of money towards, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and and again, it was it was it was easy to be cynical. You know, these organizations, oh, it's so easy to throw out money. 
you know, you know, Google's obviously got 120 million they can spend. Uh, Apple's obviously got 100 million dollars they can spend. But when you look at like the the monies for Apple when they were super super specific and talking about how they want the money to go out to HBCUs and and all that sort of thing. And now you again on this timeline, this continuum that we're on, and then these laws come through. Like you start, you're starting to see like the, the the compassionate leaders from these brands and how they're spending their money and what they're standing up for and what they're not. Like it's this isn't a one off, and that's you know to me really really important. I think for us to realize is that um, and, and these these are significant. Like they, they to say that you know Google, you know Google or Googlers and and people who are all Google, they're all Google, and people who are Applers, they're all Apple, and like they they have influence on our culture. And, and, you know, our purchasing power. So it's, it, I, I really, for me, uh, you know, and, and yes, whether or not they're doing Black Panther 2, keeping there, the, the, the economic conversation is just really an important conversation for us to keep in mind because it, it, these brands are leveraging their monies uh, for this influence um, and it's continuing. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. I think it's important. It's it's great to see. Uh, you know, there's I I tend to think of myself as an optimist, and I'm just gonna adjust the pronunciation of my name there because I know people are listening. It's Magali for anyone who is confused. Um, it gets pronounced so many different ways, which I'm totally uh, I, I'm fine with. But it's Magali is the pronunciation. And I wanted to say that I think it's really important and powerful that different companies are getting to that point where they're finally realizing it can't be a one off. Right, it can't be a one-off. And uh, is your, you know, there's there's a question that that gets to be that gets to be answered also for these brands is is our brand message, is it matching our brand's advocacy? So ultimately, if you are incongruent as a brand and if it's inauthentic, meaning it's a one and done, that's something that that people are paying attention to. And they influence our buying power, but also conversely, our buying power influences these brands. So I do think, I agree with you. It is 100% a, uh, it's also a business decision, certainly. So Magalie, where do you think we're going? Like where, given the changes that we've seen just over the last year, what do you think is going to be the change we're going to see moving forward? Uh, let's see. I, I mean, I honestly can't answer that because I can't, I can't see the future. And I don't think any of us can answer that because I don't think any of us know, right? I think the question we get to be asking ourselves is what kind of future do we wish to see? And not only that, that's the first question, but the next is what am I committed to? You know, one of the things I often am facilitating around or my facilitators are, are, are supporting organizations in coming to clarity on and, and leadership in coming to clarity on is uh, what am I committed to, right? Because, because transformation and change and diversity, equity, inclusion, it's, a it's on a continuum. And so knowing that it can't be a one and done uh, to Mike's point, knowing that it is going to affect business, knowing that your brand advocacy gets to ma match your your brand's uh, values and and you know gets to be aligned, I think it's really ultimately about what are you committed to because the action that you're going to take today may not be the action that's called for tomorrow based on what's happening. Right? None of us can predict the future, and we don't know how much worse things are going to get. We don't know how much better, but we can certainly 
commit to our intent, our set our intention and then commit our actions to it. Um, and that's, that's the best I have in terms of reading the future, Nina. <laughs> now, I, now that's great. And I think that's, you know, for, for our audience, um, you know, I, I love the, the, the practicality of asking the right questions, being more curious, um, but, but, and, and, you know, but, but asking the right questions to figure out what you want that future to be. Um, but also to figure out what the intention is behind the things that you're doing. Uh, I think that's, that's a huge takeaway because very often it is very performative, the things that are done, you know, and, and they're there for press releases or whatever, social media posts. But did anybody think about like, what could we actually do? <laughs> what, what's the impact we could actually make? And, and what is the future that we could shape? instead of just sort of sitting back and applauding when we think we need to applaud or supporting when we think we need to support without really thinking about why we're doing that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what's showing up is when we have um, legislation like SB 202, right. And this, this, these voter suppression laws that are coming to the forefront, I think it's, it's people, this isn't just about business. It's also, the, there are people who run the businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people are beginning to realize that they've got to put their money where their mouth is. They've got to put their time and attention uh, where they say, where they, where they say in the press releases, they're going to do it and they're being held accountable to it. So that's, that's well, a great thing to see too. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, especially from, from a talent perspective, which is the world that, that the three of us live in a lot, you know, their talent are demanding it. You know, they don't want to go work for a company who supports that uh, a voter suppression law. You know, they don't want to go and work for a company that doesn't believe in uh, helping the community around them or being diverse, being inclusive. So companies who fail to see and understand and believe that are going to go away because they're not going to have anybody yeah. to work for them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I think they're going to go. I definitely agree. And we also just saw. Um, oh, now I'm thinking of his name, but I'll, I'll tell you in one second if I can think about the name. But he just got let go. Uh, oh, I'm looking for it. I can't. I can't think of. I don't have his name. But but this is an 88 year old man who's been running. You know, he's been in a position of leadership. He was the president of a particular organization eight times in a, eight consecutive years. I mean, or eight times in a row rather. And right. he just got fired. He just got fired. I'm going to find it in a second. Philip Burke. It was Philip Burke. That, who was it? I found it. Philip Burke. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, really this is huge. You know, he was a long time uh, member of the uh, H it's a, it's an acronym, so it's tough, but it's HFPA. And uh, he just got got fired at 88 years old because he sent an email and it was it was deemed racist. And, and we just leaders really, again, what's gotten us this far won't get us where we're going. Well, and, and I just I just firmly believe like the uh, there's these movements and for all of the <laughs> all, all of the harm that can be done with social media, that sort of thing. I, I truly believe the. The, the fact of the matter is there can be something that we can do and continue to share uh, this this kind of, you know, positive type 
you know, uh, messaging that's out there and support the organizations that are that are against this. And then quite honestly, the organizations that are, you know, in Atlanta that feel like they have a congressman in their back pocket uh, or whatever, like, you know, at some point in time, there's only so many conservative white dudes to go around. And truly, they are going to run out of talent. Yes. <laughs> Mike, that was that was such a Mike. Oh, my gosh, Mike, that was a mic drop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. That was it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's exactly it. And yeah, that's why this conversation just needs to keep happening. And, um, uh, you know, Magali, we can't thank you enough for for, for bringing this because it is such a pertinent right now conversation for bringing your perspective and bringing some clarity to it. And, and yeah, just really, I think giving people uh, a way to combat things like this, or at least a way to think about combating it in an effective way. Uh, So thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really an honor and I'm, I'm just, I couldn't have been the better way to end my day. Uh, my cousin Midwin Charles would have been very, very proud. She was a, a big advocate, a social justice advocate in her uh, legal analysis. And, and I, I am very honored to be discussing this particular topic. And um, there are things that regular people can do. We can write to our elected officials. Uh, we can protest. We get to, to raise our voices and do all that we can to make sure that this type of, of law, these types of laws uh, really don't go unanswered. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us today, especially on such a uh, um, uh, important day for you uh, with, uh, with, with your grieving process. So thank you for sharing uh, this moment with us. We really appreciate it. And sorry, I massacred uh, the, uh, the, the, the presentation of your You're forgiven. You're forgiven. <laughs> and thank you all listeners for joining us once again. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thanks, everybody. Take care.